what you'll notice is that you know us as humans day to day we have all kinds of small hacks that we're not conscious of um just to, to get things done and because they work well enough we, you know we stop thinking about them so when you when you walk into a user interview you're not going to have the the user come and shake you and be like oh my god this is really bothering me it it happens so often to us in user interviews where we'll ask them you know uh, what what um how do you currently do x and and you know they'll describe it and we'll say you know and how do you how do you currently feel about the way you do this and they'll be like oh it's fine um and then when we continue to ask follow up questions they'll say you know what now that now that you reminded me this part of doing x is really frustrating it it really annoys me uh, and and there you've hit on um a potential pain point and you want to dig deeper so so some of the best practices are um don't ask leading questions you asked about what's a common mistake that i see a lot of times we want to show the user that uh, and in normal everyday day-to-day conversation it's natural to um it's natural to make presumptions just to make the conversation flow more smoothly the way a user interview flows is sometimes not it's not very smooth because sometimes the interviewee might find your question strange or they might think that oh why are they asking me this i have to explain something obvious you have to feel comfortable just ask ask these questions don't try to jump in don't ask them oh isn't isn't this isn't x so frustrating or or try to guess is is the reason why you do um x because of y just ask them very open ended questions and say oh you know that's interesting why is that continue to dig deeper and try to understand the mental model around something uh, completely we finally got a chance to record this episode after a lot of uh, rescheduling and uh, my apologies uh, this month has been uh, absolutely crazy but uh, i'm super happy that we finally oh able to do this same i'm excited lovely lovely i love your background is that is Thank that you. something you use at zena yeah we have a lot of this art we're big fans of it <laughs> i also Part saw of one of your posts where um your chief designer was giving a talk and then um you had mentioned that a lot of your design is inspired um it's it's middle eastern but it has a lot of international inspiration international influence what is that about yeah. yeah so i am from the region i'm jordanian grew up between saudi arabia and jordan and i'm super attached to the region um uh and i'm we're looking in the company to give love back to the region and pay homage to the region at the same time you know we're living in an international world we have a very diverse user base a diverse team and we don't want to build something that's classical but we want to kind of you know pay deference to our culture and and to the area there's such a rich culture in the middle east and there's so much yeah. to share no absolutely i totally agree um and i i absolutely love i absolutely love the the culture the food especially <laughs> yeah definitely yeah it's, it's, it's very cosmopolitan here Yeah absolutely so um uh, Sarah you currently based in Dubai uh, in Riyadh where are you located Yeah I'm based out of Riyadh 
So okay. I'm I'm based here full time and I make regular trips to the UAE. So um, Sarah, first of all, um, welcome to the Startup Garage podcast, and uh, I'm super happy that we are finally able to do this. Uh, so how are you how are you feeling? Likewise, I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so Sarah, to quickly introduce you to our audiences. Um, uh, you have a bachelor's and master's degree in mechanical engineering from Stanford. Uh, you've been an, uh, a serial entrepreneur, right? And your latest stint at Xena, where you had uh, the product, you're the chief product officer and, and the co-founder. Um, and you've worked across fashion, real estate, and now in fintech, right? So before we dive into fintech and Xena and the whole payments ecosystem, what I would really love to talk about um, is the formative years that you've had um, in Stanford, uh, growing up in, in Saudi Arabia, growing up in Jordan, and then how did, how did your growing up affect um, your mindset as an entrepreneur? And because it takes a lot of mind share to switch industries as an entrepreneur. So um, working in fashion and then going from there to starting a fintech company, um, what does it really take? Yeah, definitely. I'd love to share my, my story. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs, starting with my grandfather. He had his, um, his own business in Jordan. Uh, my father later went on. He unfortunately lost his father at a young age. So I never met my grandfather, but his legacy lives on uh, in our family. Um, he was very in favor of both entrepreneurship and um, especially education. Um, and he passed this on to my to my father, uh, who also uh, went on to start his own business with with his siblings and some other partners. And um, you know they went through ups and downs. They they put in the blood, sweat, and tears. They've built a successful company. Um, and I take I take a lot from him, especially his ability to maintain a cool head. Um, you know to to be able to cultivate the skills to turn off even when things are fraught with stress. Uh, even when it feels like, you know, you're, you're buried, buried between, uh, beneath a mountain. Um, so I'm very inspired by, by my family and also very inspired by the region that I'm from. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia and Jordan. I'm really attached to the region, really attached to my family here. Everything that the culture has to offer, the food, the history, the arts, um, very attached to the region. At the same time, I wanted the opportunity to explore the rest of the world. So after graduating from high school, I, uh, my parents joked that I picked the furthest possible place away from them, not intentionally, I just wanted to see the rest of the world. So went to get my bachelor's from Stanford um, uh, in, in California in mechanical engineering. And that was a whole new world for me very different way of thinking, very different lifestyle. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm nostalgic for those times. Uh, and that's where I first got exposed. What, what's very interesting about Stanford University, they have extremely strong engineering programs, medical program, law program. Um, but you can say that about a lot of uh, universities in the US, in the U UK globally. What stood out to me was how confident the student body is and how much belief the teaching faculty and the staff have in you. They constantly are relaying these messages to you that, you know, 
you can do whatever you set out to do. You can achieve whatever it is you want to do. And when you see, when you're surrounded by a lot of other individuals who have the same confidence and ambition, it's hard not to catch it yourself. Um, you, 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 you know, you ask yourself, wow, like they're doing it. And if they can do it, so, so can I, you know? Um, so I think that was something huge that I, I took away from, from Stanford. And it was the birthplace of a lot of these companies, right? Uh, Snapchat, Robinhood. This was even, you know, I wasn't there at the time of Google, uh, but even while I was there uh, uh, during my time, I had a lot of friends who were entrepreneurs um, in the environment, um, uh, renewable energy space and the marketing tech space who have gone on uh, to be uh, very successful. Um, so that that was an amazing experience. And this is where I first um, uh, learned about the design, thing, design thinking methodology and the user-centric uh, methodology. Uh, so uh, mechanical engineering at Stanford is underneath the design school. Um, so they gave me this toolkit and I put it to use um, uh, in internships and uh, afterwards after graduating. Um, so you've mentioned that I've been in a number of different industries. I've been in the self-driving car industry. I've been in the um, property tech or real estate industry. I've been in the food and beverage industry, which is very different. But the same principles apply of uh, being lean, this mo uh, mentality of running experiments to de-risk your business model, to help you gather information and pivot early uh, before you invest heavily in a particular uh, process or team or business model. Um, and um, the principles of user centricity, never making assumptions about users and needs or their pain points, but going back to the users and using the different tools in, in this toolkit. So there's user interviews, user surveys, there's field research, uh, there's all kinds of tools you can use to develop empathy for your user um, and build a product that addresses a true pain point, uh, because that's when you're, you'll see, you'll find product uh, market fit much more quickly, and you'll have um, users knocking at your door, as opposed to having to pull teeth in order to, to make a sale or to bring on a user. That makes a lot of sense. And also, I think um, that's, that's a great thing that mechanical engineering um, falls under the design school. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a very interesting take. So, uh, was that was was Stanford the place where you really realized that you wanted to directly get into entrepreneurship? Uh, did you want to um, work with a startup? Did you want to start up something of your own? What was really that point in your in your life where you realized that you wanted to do? I know that that it's in your family, it's in your blood, uh, entrepreneurship. But but what was that time? What was that realization point for you? You know, I've always operated with the mentality that I, I won't overthink things. I will um, take up opportunity as it comes to me. Uh, because in the past, when I have tried to over-engineer things, it feels a bit forced. So I, I always had an inclination that I do want to start something of my own, partially because my family had done it, partially because that was kind of what was in uh, at Stanford. Um, but I also felt, you know, um, if, the right, if the right opportunity isn't there, I'll work, I'll work for another company, develop my skill set. I won't say no to a good opportunity, even if 
I'm not necessarily the the founder or or the the entrepreneur. Um, and and that's what happened. So I founded one venture uh, prior to to Zina, which was in the food and beverage space. Um, we came across a big opportunity. I um, uh, came across someone who I felt is the right partner. So I decided, okay, I, I want to pursue this. And it's very similar. That's very similar to what happened at, at Zina. Um, a number of factors kind of collided that made the opportunity make a lot of sense. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. And I think entrepreneurship um, also it's you really realize the the gravity of it once you get into it. Um, so yeah. it's I mean I've done it for a good five years, and um, when I look back to the days when I when I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and that was back in school, um, I realized that it was all rosy back then, and. But I think it's a good thing that it's rosy when you're outside because that makes you jump in and uh, the hard times make you realize how uh, how badly you you like doing that, right? So I think, yeah. I think that's that's the beauty of it. So yeah, Sarah, definitely. moving to, uh, moving to um, what you do now, the, the conceptualization of Xena, and it's it's one of the first, it's in fact the first licensed P2P payments uh, platform in the UAE. Um, and like you said in the beginning, you're, you are looking to pay a homage to the culture of, of the Middle East and um, build something that people over here really love. Um, so how did the whole concept of Xena come together uh, with your co-founders? What was the, what was the uh, initial first days like? And what's the story behind that? Also, what's the, what's the story behind the name? So in terms of how Zina was conceived, it's very similar to the earlier point we were talking about, about you know, opportunity landing at your feet. Prior to, to starting Zina, I was in the startup space in the UK and London. And London, London is one of the fin, uh, global fintech hubs. Yep. And I was trying to make the most out of the city. So I was working for a startup at the same time, attending lots of um, events geared towards startups, uh, hearing from other entrepreneurs, uh, networking, and um, I found myself attending a lot of uh, events uh, in fintech. Um, one event in particular struck, uh, stuck out to me where the co-founder of Monzo, which is one of the leading neobanks in London, said that in the UK, fintech is only 1% done. You know, what we've seen so far is just the tip of the iceberg with the advances that we're seeing in data automation. Um, we can really transform financial services to, to be totally in service of, of the user. You know, uh, previously, only the most wealthy individuals could afford, uh, you know, a Swiss financial advisor. Now technology makes it so that you can have everyone have their own a financial advisor. Um, even if you take something as simple as a bank statement, you know, it'll start on a random day of the month, uh, for example, whatever, 6th of March. And it's not necessarily in the most user-friendly format. There's a lot of people who are living uh, from paycheck to paycheck, and they struggle with forecasting their, their expenses. There's so much we can do in terms of building out analytics tools, all presented in a way that's very user-friendly, understandable, 
Um, so I got really excited about this. And in my mind, I felt that if FinTech is only 1% done in London, then in the Middle East, you know, it's maybe closer to zero. We haven't yet been hit by this wave of innovations. It's coming and there's a lot of uh, talented people in the ecosystem, a lot of energy, a lot of optimism, uh, which is amazing. Uh, but similar to London, you know, this is only the peak of the iceberg. We haven't seen anything yet. So I got uh, really excited and started messaging my co-founder back and forth, who is also my sibling. And he was in touch with our third co-founder, Andrew, who is head of engineering at Xena. He's um, American from California. And um, uh, the three of us got, got really excited. Um, we said, you know, um, let's, let's see if we can build something of our own. We knew that we wanted to start it in the UAE uh, because it's uh, super business friendly, um, easy to attract uh, talent, has so much going for it. And um, from there, we'll um, uh, expand to the rest of the region. So we went and we conducted over a dozen uh, need finding interviews with people across demographics. And we asked them very open-ended questions following the principles of the you know, design thinking methodology and user-centric design. So we asked them, you know, when you travel abroad, how do you make payments? When you apply for a loan, what do you do? When you meet a friend for lunch, how do you split the bill? And what we discovered were dozens and dozens of unresolved um, pain points and needs. Uh, there's so much we can offer to, to users that can add tremendous value to them in their lives. So this to us uh, pointed to the size of the opportunity. And we, we, we said to ourselves, okay, you know, we, we're set, now that we have this uh, data, we're, we're set on our mission. We want, to, we want to empower people in MENA by building the region's first customer-centric digital wallet. And we're gonna start with peer-to-peer -peer payments. Uh, and there's a few uh, reasons why we uh, decided on that. We, we made an assessment and we knew we could get an MVP out the door in a matter of months. Peer-to-peer um, -peer payments are also uh, shown to have superior um, uh, customer acquisition costs. So it's relatively affordable to acquire a customer for, for this type of product. Uh, and lastly, it was a pain point that kept on coming up again and again, both in our interviews and even organically in social settings, um, wherever we would turn. So we, we set on that as our, um, our first use case. That's super interesting. And also, um, I would love to zoom into the discussion um, on how to conduct these initial user interviews, because I think that's one of the most crucial parts of uh, building an MVP, because initially, I mean, when we look at product, um, most of what product management today is and focuses on is growth stage products. So there is a validated user need for which products need to be built. And there are features that need redefinement. But I think mm -hmm. what's, what's really interesting over here um, in your story is a lack of the lack of a product and then really trying to figure out within the whole landscape, where is the need uh, most uh, has the most magnitude. And at the same time, it's, it's, cheaper or easier to acquire consumers and has more stickiness. So I would love to uh, know more a bit more, I'd uh, love to know a bit uh, about uh, these user interviews and what do you think um, 
is the biggest mistake that people make while conducting these user interviews and also what is the difference when you look at a b2c i mean for you with it was a p2p product but for a customer facing app uh, how do these uh, user interviews usually work yeah definitely so i do want to caveat that i think it's always challenging it's never easy to hit on a pain point and to find and to use that to find product market fit. We're a Y Combinator company. I saw other companies within our cohort who really, there's one company I know of, they had to pivot something like 14 times before they found product market fit and they just closed a $20 million Series A, I believe. So it's not, I, I think it was an over, it took them over a year to, to hit on that like real pain point. Um, thankfully, the, the toolkit that I got from Stanford and from the design school at Stanford has been tremendously helpful. Um, so what you'll notice is that, you know, us as humans day to day, we have all kinds of small hacks that we're not conscious of um, just to, to get things done. and because they work well enough we, you know we stop thinking about them so when you when you walk into a user interview you're not going to have the the user come and shake you and be like oh my god this is really bothering me it it happens so often to us in user interviews where we'll ask them you know uh, what what um how do you currently do x and and you know they'll describe it and we'll say you know and how do you how do you currently feel about the way you do this and they'll be like oh it's fine um, and then when we continue to ask follow-up questions, they'll say, you know what, now that, now that you reminded me, this part of doing X is really frustrating. It, it really annoys me. Uh, and, and there you've hit on um, a potential pain point and you want to dig deeper. So, so some of the best practices are um, don't ask leading questions. You asked about what's a common mistake that I see. A lot of times we want to show the user that, uh, and in normal everyday day-to-day -day conversation, it's natural to, um, it's natural to make presumptions just to make the conversation flow more smoothly. The way a user interview flows is sometimes not, it's not very smooth because sometimes the interviewee might find your question strange or they might think that, oh, why are they asking me this? I have to explain something obvious. You have to feel comfortable, just ask, ask these questions, don't try to jump in, don't ask them, oh, isn't, isn't this, isn't X so frustrating? Or, or try to guess, is, is the reason why you do um, X because of Y? Just ask them very open-ended questions and say, oh, you know, that's interesting. Why is that? Continue to dig deeper and try to understand the mental model around something uh, completely. For us, when we were trying to understand peer-to-peer -peer payments, because we, are working to, we want to build the perfect peer-to-peer uh, -peer, um, uh, payment experience to make sending and receiving uh, cash truly seamless. So, you know, we'll say, okay, you know, once you, uh, once you, um, the user will tell us, I'll, I'll ask my friend uh, to, to pay me back and we'll ask them, okay, how, how do you do that? And they'll say, um, uh, I'll reach out to them by WhatsApp uh, and then I'll uh, get their, um, uh, you know, I'll agree to, um, to, to carry cash to, to hand them the next time that I see them. Um, they might mention, um, they might, 
you should be careful to listen to, to every single step and they, they might gloss over some steps. So you'll be like, okay, you mentioned that um, you'd reach out to your friend, how? And, and then they'll bring up WhatsApp. Anyways, when you are super, super thorough, you can understand the, the mental model and the user journey and plot it out. And you're more likely to, to come across a pain point. Um, so another tool in the design thinking toolkit is the five whys. Continue to ask why. Okay, you know, you um, you tell your friend that you'll just pay them back uh, another time. Why? And you keep on asking why. And it, you know, it doesn't always work, but oftentimes it it will give you some insight, and it helps. All of these tools are really helpful to build uh, deep empathy for for the user. And when you're able to do that, you're much more likely to build a product that actually meets their their pain point. And that's why we see a lot of products, right, that were built by people who were almost addressing their own need because they struggled so much with something. They said, you know what, I'm just going to build this myself and see who else needs it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's super interesting. And the thing that you said about design thinking principles um, for our audiences, if you can talk a bit more about what are what what is design thinking at its very core? So if we fundamentally look at what design thinking is, um, what does it mean? And how is it different from, say, usual problem solving or business thinking for that matter? So design thinking is, it's a certain approach to problem solving where you're trying to solve not for a beautiful, just a beautiful aesthetic design, but one, you know, um, the, the very best designs are the ones that are most simple, but the most simple designs are also the ones that are most challenging to, to build. Yeah. Um, yeah. So design is not just about building something that's aesthetically, you know, nice to look at, but something that truly addresses uh, uh, people's needs. And they talk about um, when you're validating your, your business model at the very beginning or you're validating business ideas, <laughs> you want to think about three concentric um, elements. So you have the desirability. If I build this business idea, is this something that people truly want? Uh, and then yep. you have the viability. Okay, this is something people truly want, but can I even build this? Does the technology exist? Does the, um, am I able to get any licenses that I require? Um, and then there's the feasibility. So if, if, I, if people want it and I can technically build it, is it going to be profitable? Or are the unit economics something that are really, uh, they're not gonna justify the work. Yeah. Um, so the design thinking toolkit gives you a lot of tools that you can use to get early validation. Um, and nothing's ever a, ever a guarantee, but it just, the more you can de-risk your business idea in the early stages, uh, <laughs> the better it will be. And when you can, when you can, um, start with a when you've started with a product that naturally addresses a pain point so well your mm -hmm. life becomes much easier in terms of yeah. marketing in terms of sale some of the very best products have not um even had a marketing budget they rely on on word of yeah. mouth like back in the day yeah 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 i mean this this so reminds me of um this quote by Steve Jobs, which which is very simple, which says, uh, "Simplest stuff we should we should do more simple, right?" And um, yeah, absolutely. And, 
I mean, I am reminded of this one anecdote from his uh, from his biography by Walter S. Saxon, um, which says that the first design of the Apple um, uh, the Apple iPod was uh, a big clunky design, and when when the design team showed it to Steve Jobs for the first time, he literally just put it in a in a tank of uh, in a fishbowl in water. And oh, wow. they were like, they were like bubbles in the water. And then he said, there's this space for air in this device, make it smaller. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, yeah. I mean, I, I really admire his, his style of uh, his, his design thinking and his, uh, the whole, the whole, whole uh, philosophy of Apple in terms of design. Mm-hmm. Definitely. They're, they're one of the companies that really inspire us. If you think about them, they took you know, now we take for granted that, you know, uh, computing products are look beautiful and they're a pleasure to use. But back in the day, it was very unintuitive that what he wanted to do, that he wanted to take uh, personal computing, which people were used to putting, you know, hidden away at the back of the room. It doesn't need yeah. to look pretty and and design. Yeah. And yeah, I, I hear stories. He was quite... Um, he, he took this to, to quite the extreme. I, I believe <laughs> when he was the CEO at yeah. Next, he paid $100,000 uh, yeah. for the design of, of the logo. Uh, and wow. he, he wanted to have uh, the perfect spiral staircase at, at Apple. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he was, he was, uh, he hitted the commencement speech in 2008, right? In Stanford. Yeah. Yes, this is a legendary talk. I really like it. Yeah, I love it. I love it as well. Is this still? Is there like still uh, Steve Jobs influences in Stanford? Uh, is he like worshipped over there or what? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know. I I don't think his name comes up often in in daily conversation, but I maybe parts yeah. of his, his ethos are. Yeah. around the campus i think his uh, one of his children is attending stanford now oh is it okay wow that's awesome so uh, sarah the the next part of uh, what i want to discuss with you and i think it fits perfectly into the three uh, cycles that you talk the, the three concentric circles that you talked about right so uh, desirability viability and feasibility so uh, in terms of fintech there definitely is desirability and we we just spoke about that um, but next, I also want to talk about since you since you pointed out uh, um, regulation, right? FinTech is often a highly, highly regulated market, unlike uh, fashion or for that matter, EV, right? The, the mobility space. Um, FinTech is highly regulated, especially in the Middle East um, with a whole uh, Islamic finance angle as well to it, right? So um, how, how does that really work with uh, the kind of, and also I, I really want to understand this. Um, I've asked this question to a lot of people from Middle East. I was speaking with, I did one episode on FinTech 101 with a person um, from Middle East. I'm, I'm not able to recall the name, but asked, I asked him the same question. Um, why is it that the that still the bank apps, like not just in India, but also in, in the UAE, in, in the UK, in the US, all of these bank apps are super clunky. Um, and the user experience is really, really bad. Is it, is, does it have something to do with, with regulation or what is, the, what is the real reason? Yeah, 
you know, to be to be totally transparent, I'm not sure what what the reason is. I can't I can't speak on the the bank's uh, behalf. Um, we're building something quite different. We're we're building a digital wallet, so it could be that, you know, there might be factors specific to banking that end up resulting in products that maybe are not as, you know, not as seamless to use as in uh, as other apps we might see. Uh, even in the U.S., um, when I would bank with Bank of America, uh, you know, it's it's a solid bank. Um, but I can't compare uh, Bank of America to, um, for example, you know, any any uh, uh, super seamless app, for example, yep. Uber or, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, it's it's a good question. So in, in terms of regulation, uh, for us uh, specifically, we're a digital wallet. We have to be in full compliance with uh, regulatory requirements for, for digital wallets. And there's there's a lot there. It's a, you know um, uh, there's a lot of processes we have to have uh, internally within the company. There's certain requirements, you know, in terms of our onboarding flow. Uh, we are required to ask the user to to identify themselves, and our job is to make um, to take those requirements and uh, make sure we're in full compliance. Um, you know, with any function in Xena, we want to build a world world class function, and that applies to compliance as well. So we want to make sure we're we're following uh, regulation fully, uh, while at the same time providing um, uh, a pleasurable, non high friction user experience. So how do we make it so that in the onboarding we collect the information that we need, uh, while at the same time making it uh, meet ex people's expectations for speed, um, for uh, intuitiveness. Uh, so there is uh, that that did take some some work from our end. Um, yeah, and it's we we commit a lot of resource to to compliance in terms of uh, yep. transaction monitoring, um, you know, uh, anti money laundering uh, processes. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Also, um, uh, Sarah, a lot of uh, regulation now. Uh, focuses on fraud and, uh, like you just said, anti-money laundering and, and fraud and leakages throughout the throughout the value chain of uh, of payments. Um, and I think uh, decentralized finance is coming up big time uh, to solve for that. I don't know how far we are uh, in terms of really getting our hands onto a truly decentralized finance application. But um, so uh, next, I I also want to understand in terms of the products. Um, so there's a huge, huge uh, notion in the digital world. All, all organizations are going digital and COVID has been a big, big factor in, in that. And for that reason, I think product management has become, because most of these organizations, legacy organizations, which had been using legacy systems are now turning to digital systems. And hence, there is more and more need to manage these systems to um, understand the product mindset and run it. Right, so product management is a is a big upcoming field. In fact, um, in our B school the other day, uh, we were talking about it, and we said product management is the new consulting. Um, so, how are what, in your opinion, what is the future of products going to be like? Are they going to be hyper personalized? Are they going to be um, totally focused on 
the user experience in uh, minimalism, simplicity, like you just mentioned, um, or are they going to be truly decentralized um, and people would be paying for each and every um, um, each and every product that they use? So, in your opinion, as as uh, a product veteran, uh, what where do you see the the whole ecosystem moving towards? That's a good question. I, you know, I think, I think each of the different trends that you mentioned are going to um, materialize in, in some format. I do see, and um, uh, I'm very bullish about um, uh, DeFi and, and cryptocurrency um, and, uh, and, and Web3. And I, I feel there's similar to, you know, back in the day, uh, right when the internet was introduced, Mm -hmm. There was excitement and there's also skepticism yeah. and a lot of uh, individuals who were predicting that the internet would be a flop, yeah. you know, they couldn't even conceive of what the future would look like with the internet, which I don't blame them. It's really hard to do. And yeah. I feel the same when I think about uh, Web3, but my, my personal belief is that that's where we're at, that there are use cases that we're not even aware of that are going to slowly materialize uh, using uh Web three, and I think mm -hmm. it's um, this even applies to to business ideas. If we sit and we list out every single, whether it's a business idea or you know, a, and you know the the industrial revolution or the 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 internet revolution, if we sit and list out all the different challenges, it makes it sound like it's impossible, and yet these things happen, right? You know, if if we look at uh, Jeff Bezos at the founding of Amazon, if he sat and listed every single obstacle that he would have to overcome in order to, to build Amazon, um, it, it would have never materialized. But I don't think life works like that. I think that things happen. For me, the, 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 strongest, um, the strongest thing you can do as an entrepreneur is be very persistent and continue to build momentum. And even if, you know, a, a certain element of a movement is not is problematic or um, it has not yet been perfected. If you continue, um, if you continue going, mm -hmm. either the technology will catch up or that consideration will become irrelevant, or so many people will be invested in the space that it becomes an inevitability. Hmm. And this is my feeling for for Web three. Everyone from you know. Um, everyday uh, individuals all the way to the, the biggest institutions, JP Morgan, um, uh, JP Morgan, Walmart, uh, everyone is investing heavily into it and there's so much energy and enthusiasm. And I get, I, get, I get that there's skepticism and it's hard to sometimes wrap my head around certain business models. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like if humanity is putting so much energy into something and working on it, I feel like mm -hmm. it's bound to materialize. Yeah. Yeah, it's and hard. It's fight against all this momentum to hmm. you know to say thing. This is not going to happen. No, definitely. And I think it's very important as a founder um, in this space. So any founder who is in adjacent spaces to say Web three or fintech like you are in, um, I think it's very important to have an open mind and um, be receptive to new ideas and at least have an opinion on them, right? So um, because. Um, you never know what's what's going to 
come in and and disrupt your business so you really need to keep your eyes and ears open and, and be receptive to new ideas um, no that's that's awesome sarah my one of my last uh, questions to you is um, around like you mentioned ue is a great great place for um, new entrepreneurs and um, um, to set up business uh, it's one of the the hubs in the middle east uh, when it comes to fintech or business or startups in general um, what kind of and and you work you've worked with microsoft for startups with roboto noor and team uh, what how has your ex- overall experience been in in the uae in terms of the ecosystem uh, in terms of talent capital and the ecosystem enablers the players like uh, microsoft for startups i'm really happy that we decided to start zena in the uae it's it's really business friendly it's very easy to, to quickly set up a, a business um, attracting talent is is relatively uh, easy it's becoming a global destination you know it's uh, there's buzz around the uae um, there's a lot of support in the ecosystem as well so you mentioned microsoft for startups um, in Abu Dhabi, you have uh, Hub 71, which has uh, a great program and great initiatives. Um, um, if you see the headlines, lots of uh, ventures out of the UAE are being funded. Uh, there's lots of interest to fund uh, ventures in the UAE. Um, yeah. Um, uh, there's even, you know, matters like uh, visas. They've uh, been rolling out uh, the golden visa to lots of members of the tech community uh, the golden visa makes it so that you only need to renew it once every every 10 years and you don't need to be tied to any specific uh, sponsor which is a huge huge draw for um for tech employees um, oh, wow. okay so so this is yeah this is um this was offered to the entire zina team which was great um wow. we we've also there's um there's a unit um, called the uh, Dubai Economic uh, Accelerator Unit that identifies okay. high potential uh, firms. And, and we were identified as one of the top 10 growth companies in the UAE. And they've been tremendously supportive, uh, opening doors for us, introductions, um, uh, uh, lobbying uh, for Zina. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're, we're very happy to, to be in the UAE. Um, and I would say that one of the greatest things has been uh, the talent, uh, whether it's talent that already, uh, you know, um, who already are located in the UAE or people moving from abroad. Um, so mm-hmm. our our co-founder, for example, uh, he is uh, American um, from California, former Coinbase, uh, former Apple engineer. He built and wow. uh, yeah, he built products that are used by hundreds of millions of people globally. Um, he actually. Uh, which also takes guts, but he uh, packed up his bags and joined us in the wow. UAE without ever having been to the to the Middle East. And I think in part because of uh, the UAE's uh, reputation. Yeah. Uh, and and we've seen this with other teammates joining us from other um, other ge- geographies globally. Hmm. No, definitely. I think it's a it's a fantastic place, and the I mean the government is so so supportive of. Um, new ideas, new talent. That it, it's it's totally surreal um, how a government institution. Because I mean, I've I've grown up in India in in South Asia, and uh, I mean, us Asians, we we 
um, do not really expect our governments to be very, very supportive of um, of regular citizens, right? So, um, and and then when I moved to uh, Dubai, to UAE, um, and then finding that all these processes of setting up a company and uh, getting visas and all of this is super, super easy and super smooth. And then, I mean, I think their user experience is at par with the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, uh, companies that, are built in the UAE, so I think that's a that's a great testament to why they're attracting a lot of talent, a lot of capital from abroad as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Lovely. Um, so Sarah, we'll we'll close out over here. Uh, it was lovely to chat with you. I have I have I literally have so many different questions <laughs> to ask you, um, and I really loved your answers. I think um, I think they were. I, I think they were really amazing because um, in terms of design thinking, I've uh, among the last few podcasts that I've done, because I don't come from a product background, I don't come from a technical background. So I've rarely interviewed people from that background. And so to be speaking to you about all of this is just super amazing. And I think people would really- By the way- these resource there's a lot of resources publicly accessible to, to anyone so there's a firm mm-hmm. called uh, ideal which okay. i think were one of the pioneers of design thinking if you go to their website mm-hmm. or whoever whoever would like can go to their website access the toolkits i've mentioned totally mm-hmm. free to use and i'm noticing mm. that a lot of the lingo from design thinking is um permeating the the tech space like i i hear talk about T-shaped individuals, and I remember this from my time in the yeah. in the D school. So, a lot of the lingo is being used by the the tech space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think, and it's 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 also amazing to see how. And I mean, I mean, I clearly see the shift, right? Um, like you just mentioned, um, more and more companies are now starting to realize the true value, the true hidden value. Like you mentioned, fintech is just one percent of uh, the actual realized value. So, and I think as and when legacy companies realize this, there will be a movement um, that will be unstoppable. Yeah, it's I great would... to see them adopting these practices. Definitely, definitely. Great. Sarah, thank you so much. I would love to um, ask you a lot of other questions. I'm, I'm so intrigued by the principles of design thinking and, and, and products in general, and also um, the whole the whole uh, dichotomy between services and, and products. Um, so we can probably, I, I mean, uh, maybe after a month or so, we can schedule one more follow up of this. <laughs> yeah, sure. I love that. Thank you Perfect. so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was a lovely conversation.